Good morning. One of the things that we like to do here is we like to have a little interaction. So I ask a couple of questions and uh, feel free to jump in and answer them. Can somebody tell me what a promise is? What is a promise? An agreement? Commitment, your word? Something you intend to do. I like that. That's a good, hey, I promise you. I intend. That's, that's pretty good. I'm going to use that one. What else? What is a promise? A contract. It's good. Covenant. What, what gives a promise its validity? What gives a promise its validity? Who made the promise? Okay. Commitment, right? See, whether we realize it or not, every day you and I are engaged in promises. See, if you're married, at some point along the line, you vowed, you promised, I'm going to love someone through thick and thin, through the good and the bad. You've received the promise saying, no matter what happens in this life and on this earth, I will be there and I will never stop loving you. If you work, you have an employer, then uh, th- there's a promise that's made to you. This is what you're going to be paid every year. This is what your check will look like. I promise you this. None of you come to payday and say, man, I really hope that I'm getting paid Well, they told me I'm going to be paid, right? You just automatically think, well, I know this is going to be in my account when payday comes. We trust in it. It's a promise, right? It, for those of you that are going to college or, or your parents and you're thinking about schooling for your kids, you're looking potentially for that place that's going to guarantee you a great education, right? You don't send your kid along to, yeah, this is like the worst college ever, but whatever, just go there, right? You're looking for the best place to send your student, right? It's a promise that's made, guaranteed. You will receive the best education if you come here. If you play on a sports team and your coach says, hey, you're going to play second, you're going to play center field, you're going to bat fourth, right? You're going to be our running back. You're going to be the goalie. It's a promise that's made. There's an expectation on your part that that promise will someday come into fruition, right? So you and I are engaged in promises every day, all the time with one another. A promise is good, right? Promises are good, but what makes them even better is when they come into fruition, right? Someone stands up on an altar and says, I'm going to love you forever. What makes good on that promise is if you actually see that happen. Sometimes, though, a promise is contingent on what we do or don't do with that promise. Let me say that again because that's going to be really important for us this morning. There are many times in life that a promise and seeing it through its fruition is contingent upon what we do. Someone says, I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. Well, I actually have to work and put in in that as well. Right? Well, I remember when um, Karen and I went through marriage counseling with Robin Sue, one of the things that they said about marriage is that it's not a 50-50 compromise. It's 100% commitment on both sides. And when someone's only given 75%, guess what? The other person's doing 125%. Like, wow. 
So no meeting halfway? No, there is no meeting halfway. It's, it's both people going the entire way. Your employer promises you a check. You actually have to do work to get that check. Hey, you're going to be paid $70,000 a year. Well, guess what? You actually have to produce $70,000 a year to actually make that come into fruition. You can't just sit down and have a donut. I mean, I mean maybe you're allowed to at work. I don't know. Not at the plant. If this sermon is awful, I, I, I get a deduction on my paycheck. <laughs> just kidding. That's true. Ah! Come on. I should have just stayed singing. Huh? Okay, let's take a vote. Okay, um, so you got to do work to actually get paid. Higher education, your promised education, your promised great schooling. You actually have to show up to class, right? Sun- Sunday night, staying up really late, not attending class, doing poorly on that test, not, not absorbing the information that's given to you. Guess what? There will be no great education that you receive. So you and I are engaged in promises every single day of our lives, every day. And more often than you think, more often than not, what you decide to do or not do actually makes that promise come into fruition. The person receiving the promise actually plays a greater role or a great role in that promise coming to be. So grab a Bible. We're going to jump into Genesis chapter 32. If you have one of these blue Bibles, it's on page 21. Genesis 32, we're going to pick it up from verse 3, but I'm going to give you guys a second to find it, and I'm also going to give you some background on where we are in the story. So Genesis 32, page 21. Give you a little background. We're picking up on the narrative of Jacob's life. If you know anything about who Jacob is, Jacob is the son of Isaac. Jacob's grandfather is Abraham. Isaac's dad. Abraham was a man that was promised something by God. He was told by God, pack your things, pack your belongings, leave your father's country, leave your father's household, and go to the place I will show you. Do these things, and I will make you a great nation. Abraham, I promise you, I will make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the people around you. For those people that curse you, I will curse. Those that bless you, I will bless so Abraham sets out, and he, and he goes on his way, but there's a dilemma. Abraham and Sarah, not as young as they used to be, right? They're not, not as young. There's an issue. We don't have any kids. How could we possibly have this promise? We are well along in our years. How could this possibly come into fruition? But we're going to trust and obey that who has spoken to us is who he says he is, and he's going to make good on his promise. So they do. A lot of time passes, a lot of patience, a lot of issues come up. But finally, Abraham and Sarah actually have a boy, and his name's Isaac. Isaac grows up, gets married, has two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. This is Jacob's lineage. Let me give you a little, little insight onto who Jacob was. Jacob, from what we understand in the Bible, he was a little bit of a schemer, a little bit of a deceiver, like to mess around with people in not the best way possible. We read part of his life story, and part of his life story with his twin brother, who Esau was actually older than Jacob. 
we read that Esau is, comes home hungry. He wants some stew. Jacob says, sell me your birthright, which maybe for us you know, today doesn't mean much of anything. But back then, it was everything. Being the firstborn, being the person that's going to receive the family blessing was everything back then. And so Jacob schemes with, with Esau to take and steal his birthright. Not only that, but a while later, Jacob schemes lies to get the blessing from his father, Isaac. Jacob was more of your homebody kind of guy. Esau was your, your manly man, you know, with hair everywhere, you know, coming out of his eyeballs. I'm just, he was a hairy guy, that's what the Bible says. I'm just letting you know. <clears throat> so, Esau is lied to. Esau has his birthright stolen. Esau has his, um, his first... Uh, his blessing, his, his blessing as a first child, stolen from him, from Jacob. Esau vows, he promises, when my father dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Jacob catches wind of this, leaves to go be with his uncle Laban, stays there for a while, enters into a whole family mess. I'm just trying to kind of bring us to where we are. Um, and now it's time. God has been blessing Jacob. It's time for Jacob to leave. And so what happens shortly before we're about to, where we're about to jump in, God tells Jacob, go back home to the land of your father, your grandfather, and your relatives, and I will be with you. Go back to the land of my father. Isn't Esau still there? Um, God... I don't know if you know what I did to my brother, but, uh, you know, last I heard, he wasn't too happy with me. And as far as we know, there was no phone call that was made. E, what's up? Who's this? Well, it's Jay. Hey, I was wondering, are you still upset at the click? Hello? Hello? Oops. I need this phone. There's no reconciliation. Yet God tells Jacob, pack your things, get your family, get your servants, get all your stuff, and head back home. Jacob, fully aware that no resolution has been made, and he has zero clue on how his uh, brother is going to receive him. This is where we pick it up. Verse, uh, so Genesis chapter 32, verse 3. says this. <clears throat> then Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau who was living in the region of Seir, in the land of Edom. He told them, Give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I have been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, we met your brother Esau, and he is already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. Sounds like a great homecoming to me. Jacob was terrified at the news, as he should be. He divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He thought if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, 
you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me, I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me, along with my wives and children. But you promised me, I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob stayed where he was for the night. The first part of what we're talking about this morning is promise. Jacob comes from a long history of promises. and We've already seen a part of that. Abraham, his grandfather, was the first one that was told by God, I am going to bless you. I am going to make a great nation out of you. Out of you will come a great people. Jacob knew this. But this is not a promise that you and I make to each other where we intend to do something for someone. Yeah, I'll have that to you by the end of the day. Two weeks go by, nothing. Yeah, you know, this is how it's going to work out. Just talk to so-and-so and it'll all be fine. It doesn't happen that way. These are not promises that you and I make to each other. This is a promise that has come from the very mouth of God to Jacob. It has come from the very mouth of God to Jacob. This is not a promise from his crazy uncle, his crazy relative. You know who that person is. They pull you off to the side. They get a little close to you. Hey, when you get older, Think about it. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about a promise that comes directly from God to Jacob. It's a part of who Jacob is. Promises, a long history of promises, are a part of who Jacob is, where he's come from, but it's also where Jacob is going. It's also where Jacob is going. So we have this promise. He has this promise, and so he contends with God. He prays to God. He says, you promised me. You, you, you're the one that told me to get up and leave all my stuff. I, I was doing fine here, right? You were blessing me. You know, when I came, I had nothing, yet look at all the stuff that I have. You're asking me, you're telling me to get up to go. And you're the one telling me that you're going to be with me, that, I, that I, we have favor together, yet we have this really big problem. My brother, remember him? He wanted to kill me. And now he's coming after me with an entire army. Not just him, not just five guys, not just his little posse, no. 400 people, 400 men, an entire army. God, how are you possibly going to make good on your promise to me? And so we're going to skip over a couple of verses, but what ends up happening is Jacob gets up and he sends donkeys and cows and cattle and, and Android phones and Google tablets. Nothing really of any value whatsoever. So he sends the stuff along, hoping, praying, that as my brother receives these things, maybe this will lessen the blow. Maybe, maybe 
it, we don't know what he's thinking, but maybe he's thinking, well, this is some of the stuff that I stole from him. And if he's still angry about that, maybe his receiving this will make things better between us. Jump down to verse 22. Verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with him. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. First part of this morning deals with the promise. Second part of this morning deals with what we're going to be talking and have been talking about throughout the summer. Prayer. Prayer is going to come up huge in what we're about to see as we finish up the story and wrap up this morning. The first part of who Jacob was was all about promise. But the second part of this deals with prayer. And this is not a quick just underneath your breath, uh, underneath your breath, God, you know, bless the fruits of you know, our bodies. Amen. This was an all-night, all-out wrestling and contending. And that word, when it says he fought with God, it's not like fight like, you know, we're throwing punches or whatever. That word in the Hebrew really means like contend, persist, struggle. So he contends and he persists all night with God. So this is what happens in the next morning. So go to chapter 33. We're going to start with verse 2. He put the servant wives in their... <clears throat> Oops, sorry. No, we'll start with, with, with verse 1. 33, verse 1. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his, neck, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, Who are these people with you? These are the children of God. These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children, and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came? Esau asked. Jacob replied, They are a gift, my lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, No, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile. It is like seeing the face of of God. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
Jacob in this moment realizes something. He realizes that him sending these gifts along the way had nothing to do with his brother looking favorably upon him. In this moment, their last thing that we read there, looking at your face is like seeing the face of God. He had just the night before called the place Peniel, face of God. I've seen God face to face and he's allowed me to live. In this moment, Jacob realizes that it's nothing of what he has done so that his brother would have favor with him. Nothing. He realizes this is the hand of God, the power of God bringing reconciliation to a broken, shattered relationship. See, in this passage, we see two miracles. The first miracle we see is the obvious what just happened between him and Esau. And we don't know what happened to Esau along the way, right? We don't know uh, what he was planning on doing. I mean, this could have easily been something that Esau shows up to, stares at his brother and says, look at all my power. I could totally take you out. I hate you for the rest of my life. And we'll just turn around, go right around and go. We don't know what he exactly he was planning. Obviously, it was not (laughs) to show some kind gesture. So, Esau comes with all his men. But what Jacob was anticipating to happen and expecting to happen is totally different. The first miracle is what God did in Esau's heart. We see forgiveness. We see reconciliation. We see a broken relationship being brought together, being made whole. See, we look at something like this and we say, impossible. You don't know my family member my uncle, my, my, my grandma, my aunt, my cousins. I hate him. She hates me. This is what I did. This is what he did. We look at a situation like this. is Like, Jacob, your own flesh and blood, Esau's own flesh and blood, steals everything. When, when Esau realizes that Jacob has stolen his, uh, his blessing and, and he's there with Isaac, Isaac says, the only blessing I have for you is that you're going to serve your younger brother. What kind of blessing is that? The person that Esau is supposed to hate with his entire life, and we would say impossible, there's no way that this guy would ever forgive Jacob. There's forgiveness. There's even presence in the moment. It wasn't that Esau just showed up, you know, stared him down and turned around and left and Jacob would return home and there would be this tremendous tension between the two of them living in the same land. No, he wants to know, who are these people? Well, these these are my wife and and my kids. Wow, that's awesome. I can't wait to to get to know them. I I, I can't wait to have interactions with them and, and hear stories about their lives. Right? He's present in the moment. That's the first miracle. The second miracle we see is what's happened in Jacob's life and in his transformation. He wrestles with God all night. He contends with God all night. And at the end of it, he's transformed. Remember, just a few verses earlier, we read that Jacob's planning. His brother's coming. Okay, so let's separate the two camps. How do we make this happen? If he attacks one, then, you know, know, I'll split, you know, my wife's over here and my kids, and then my servants will be over here. And if he attacks and kills them, well, maybe they'll at least be able to get away. Right? Let me start sending gifts and presents and, 
and all this stuff to my brother to try to absolve his anger. That's what he was planning. And so we start to see here, like, oh my goodness, as, as, as we start reading, he starts putting all of his wives and all of his kids going on ahead. Like, Jacob, what are you doing? How could you possibly send them first? That's not what he does. He goes on ahead of them. Jacob could have easily started scheming another divisive plan. Well, he hasn't seen me in years. Yeah, we're twin brothers, but I've been able to trick people about who I was. Let me just use deception all over again to try to get out of this mess. Maybe I'll make someone look like me, someone to pose as me, to try to get me out of this mess. That's not what he does. He goes to his brother. He meets him first. See, in his night of struggling and contending with God, Jacob's life is radically transformed. If you remember, his hip's out of place, and he, he, he's wrestling with the guy. It, the sun's about to come up, and the guy says, let me go. No, not until you bless me. Bless me. My hip, remember my hip? You took it out. Put it back. What's your name? Who cares what my name is? I, I'm, I'm gimpy over here. I'm, help me out. What's your name? Jacob. That's not who you're going to be anymore. It's no longer who you are. You have a new name. Israel. That's your new name. Which is interesting because in the passage we read that he tells him, you've contended with God and man and you've won. You've overcome. But Israel is two Hebrew words put together which really signify God prevails. Why would Jacob prevail if his name really means God prevails. It doesn't make any sense. When, when God wins, when God won, Jacob won. When God wins in our lives, we win. Jacob wrestles and contends. Finally, Jacob gets to a place in his life where he surrenders his deceiving when he surrenders his lying, when he surrenders scheming to get ahead, to do what's right, to get what he feels like belongs to him. All of that he puts off to the side. He surrenders that before God. And so therefore, God wins. God prevails. And so Jacob prevails as well. This morning has two parts. One is a promise. The second is prayer. Divine purposes and divine promises. Don't miss this. Divine purposes, divine promises are unlocked by people who seek after God. And not just your normal, regular, bless this food, Lord. But it comes through fervent, passionate, ceaseless prayer. Jacob's promise was direct. Jacob's promise was intentional. Jacob's promise was purposeful. It was for him, only for him. You are a child of promise. Out of you will come a great nation. But for that to come into play, Jacob had to become a new person. He could no longer be the schemer that he'd been his entire life, or the deceiver that he had been his entire life. And God had to break this in him. Whether Jacob wanted to or not, God had to do this thing in him. 
over the past couple of days have been super nostalgic towards Los Angeles. A lot of you know I went to L.A. May of 2007, came home in August. Uh, right before then, December 2006, Carrie and I had broken up for like the 19th time in our relationship. You know. You were there. He was there. Yes, Carrie and I broke up a lot. Anyway, um, I was finishing up my schooling. I, real, you know, I was getting done with school, and I was realizing that working with youth, I was kind of coming to an end in that. And so I didn't really know well, what's, what's next. What's supposed to happen next? In the midst of us, Carrie and I, breaking up, a lot of just insecurities, a lot of control issues, a lot of fear, um, a, a lot of relational baggage, put it that way. And so, starting in December, when we broke up for what felt like the hundredth time, because it really was, I sought after God. I, I did some real searching. God, I have these issues. I still have issues. I have these issues, these specific ones. These specific ones that need to be dealt with. And so I'm like, I'm going to California. I've never been out there. Sounds like a great opportunity to intern out there. I'm out of here. I can't remember coming back home, God using all this stuff, reading, praying, a, a course that I took that just dealt with like a lot of just relational stuff. Going out to L.A., I remember coming home, and it was the end of August, beginning of September. And Carrie and I are working through our stuff. We're back together for the hundredth and one time. And I come to a place where this incident happens. And I, don't, I really don't remember what happened. But what I remember is stopping for a moment and thinking to myself, I should be acting right now out of fear and frustration and insecurity and wanting to control stuff. But I'm not, I'm not acting this way. I don't even have those feelings that I would normally have when something like this occurs in my life. And it was one of those just quick moments that I just like kind of briefly asked this question, like, God, am I, am I done with that? Like, are we good? Am I, am I healed from all this junk? And I, I, I really believe that God used that entire period of just seeking after him, praying nonstop, saying, you have to deal with this. Because if not, the same ridiculousness is going to keep happening in my life over and over and over again. And I need, we need to deal with this. I still like being in control. I don't know if he necessarily dealt with that side of things, but all the other stuff he totally healed me of. We can have divine purposes. Actually, not can. We have divine purposes and we have divine promises directly from God. Direct, intentional, purposeful, unique to just you and me. We have them. But it takes ceaseless praying, seeking after God, to unlock those things. And I'm not talking about getting a new car. I'm not talking about getting the house with the picket fence and the dog. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm not talking about this 
fantastic career in whatever it is. I'm not talking about becoming a billionaire, a millionaire, a hundred thousand heir. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. That's not what we're talking about. God has divine, intentional promises for each of us that deal with his kingdom. But those things are only going to be unlocked when we seek after God. Let me read you a quote that I came across as we've been going through our prayer stuff and and talking within the staff. First one says this. It's up up behind me. Our prayers are too little and feeble to execute the purposes or to claim the promises of God with appropriating power. Marvelous purposes need marvelous praying to execute them. Miracle-making promises need miracle-making praying to realize them. Only divine praying can operate divine promises or carry out divine purposes. Direct, intentional, unique. And the Bible's filled with this stuff. It's filled with men and women that hear from God with a a divine purpose and a divine promise. And it's only when they surrender who they are that God unlocks the supernatural, that God unlocks the divine, that God makes good on his promises. We have to be a people that seek after God. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's real. That's what we believe. We believe that he speaks. We believe that he wants to make himself known in us, and in the lives of the people around us. But are you willing to contend and to struggle with God all night long to see him for who he is, to see his face, to have the privilege and the honor and the beauty, to see the face of God and be able to survive to tell about it? Direct, unique, purposeful. They're for us. Yet for some reason or another, when we can have that, we choose humanity's frailty instead. We choose man's dysfunction, man's malfunction. Instead of divine purposes and divine promises, what we live in is in our sin. That's what we choose. Let's not be that. Let's be a people who seek after God and unlock his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. One last quote. How the unbelief of men has limited the power of God to work through prayer. What limitations have disciples of Jesus Christ put upon prayer by their prayerlessness? How the church, with her neglect of prayer, has hedged about the gospel and shut up the doors of access. I heard, I heard a pastor once refer to himself as a Christian atheist. He believes in God, but he lives his life as though he wasn't, as though he didn't. 
I heard that like five years ago. And I still think about this thing to this day. Am I a Christian atheist? Do I say that I believe in God? Do I say that I believe in the power of God, in the grace of God, in the miracles of God, in the healings of God, and yet live as though those things were not real? Two questions for you to contend with, and for me to contend with, to struggle with, to fight with God over. What are those divine promises for you? What has God promised you? What is yours? What, what is he giving you that's yours? And the second question is, are you contending to unlock those promises? Are you contending with God to unlock those, those purposes that he has for us? Divine promises and divine purposes are unlocked only by people that seek after God through passionate, fervent, ceaseless praying. What's your promise? And are you going after it?